0: So right now it's Tuesday morning, and there are currently nine Republicans running for House Speaker after Jim Jordan's campaign was ended with a secret ballot. By the time this podcast comes out on Wednesday, things could look completely different. But why has this whole thing been such a saga?
1: I mean, the party's been divided from the start, and the real problem is they have such a slim majority in Congress that essentially any one person or any few people can really derail the whole thing.
0: It's kind of um, the dream, right?
1: <laughs> the dream of the individual yeah. lawmaker, for sure.
0: That's my colleague Jonathan Blitzer. He's just written a piece for this week's New Yorker about Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio and his brand of far-right politics. Jordan may have lost his bid for speaker, but he remains the Republican Party's most influential insurgent. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So you've been reporting this profile of Jim Jordan um, for far longer than his whirlwind candidacy for speaker. Has it surprised you at all to see him end up at the center of this story?
1: Y- yes and no. Um, yes, it surprised me insofar as it's just an incredible set of circumstances that even gave rise to his candidacy. Uh, I mean, this is the first time in American history that members of the House have ex- voted to expel their leader. So even, even though we all knew that that was a plot line that could develop in this Congress— it's still shocking to see. I mean, it really is. So in that sense, yes, definitely surprised that Jordan was suddenly in the mix for speaker. But Jordan himself, that he's channeled all of the different currents in the Republican conference, that he's risen in the ranks, that he's become a kind of very influential player to a a number of conservatives uh, in the House, that he's become this giant symbol. all of this stuff is of a piece with his speaker's run. Um, I mean, he he has really consolidated his power for the last several years, and it's hard to understand the Republican conference without trying to understand him.
0: So. Let's talk a little bit about the Republican House right now. In your piece, you write that they're essentially too divided to legislate. There's like this really amazing line about how the current Republican House um, was sworn in with more of a complex than an agenda. And you talk about these ideological factions that have formed within the party that have become known as the five families. So I was wondering if you can tell us what those factions are and how Jordan fits into them.
1: Absolutely. So the five families, as they're described, you know, are basically all of these different elements within the conference that are at odds and that are all grappling for power, all of them seizing on the fact that because of their slim numbers, any one of these factions can really kind of dictate what what happens. There's a group of moderates who are spread over a few different kind of factions who are not thrilled that A large part of the party doesn't want to legislate and just wants to launch investigations and open impeachment inquiries and throw bombs. Those guys are at a real disadvantage because what does it mean that they're moderate? It doesn't necessarily mean that they're ideologically more moderate than some of the conservatives. The conference itself is pretty conservative ideologically. What their moderateness means in this context is essentially that they are much less inclined to blow up the whole conference to make a point. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in a way, you, you almost, well, you don't really feel for any of them in this, but you can understand the bind that they're in. I mean, they're sort of like radical accommodationists. Um, And so because they're not willing to burn everything to the ground, no one really pays too much attention to them because they can't make any significant threats. By contrast, the Freedom Caucus, which is the farthest right group, 33 odd members who have done everything over the years from trying to shut down the government to forcing a federal default to opposing Kevin McCarthy's first speaker bid back back in January, actually sabotaging his prospects many years before when he tried, those are the guys who are really kind of running the show because there are enough of them to sabotage everyone and everything.
0: So you, you mentioned that there are these moderates who actually want to legislate. But it seems like it's hard to legislate right now in the House, given that um, Democrats still control the White House and the Senate. So, like, what should be happening in the, in the House right now? Like, what do you think that they would be doing if they weren't getting sort of caught up in these little factions?
1: There are a few ways of answering it, and and the the first answer is going to sound the most naive, but it is worth stating. You know, it's not inconceivable that a Republican-controlled House could work with a Democrat-controlled Senate and uh, Democratic president and pass true. legislation. I mean, I, I myself <laughs> have kind of fallen into the habit of not even acknowledging that yeah. as a possibility. I'm like, oh,
0: they can't do anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> t- totally.
1: I mean, I, I like as, a, as a kind of rhetorical uh, summary, I'm always just discounting that possibility. But it, it's worth at least flagging that as a theoretical possibility. Of course, for all intents and purposes, that's impossible. So what what could it look like if, if the Republican conference weren't descending into utter chaos? One thing it might look like would be to pass bills out of the House to at least show that they're doing something, that they're able to pull their own ranks together and articulate some sort of coherent ideas for, say, immigration policy or, you know, different things, spending policy, so on. The problem is they don't even really have enough agreement on that to even put forward that face for the conference. They've passed a few things um, which have been real battles out of the House, but again, it's been this kind of classic fight where members of the far right who don't want to compromise on anything are kind of dominating the conversation. Kevin McCarthy, until very recently, was actually doing a pretty skillful job under the circumstances. And when I say skillful job, I mean divorcing his behavior from all of the kind of moral and Mm -hmm. policy implications of, of his role and instead just kind of looking at him as a kind of air traffic controller. He has been kind of keeping everyone at bay and preventing people from jumping at each other's throats but ultimately it's just when you have a small number of people who refuse to accommodate anyone and anything and when they have enough leverage because of the small majority to hold everything up I and mean, there's no way of of getting around this impasse
0: so i'm curious about like what the actual politics of Jim Jordan are. Um, you mentioned in your piece that he's been in Congress for 17 years, and not once has he sponsored a bill that has become a law. And, you know, we were just talking about all of this chaos in in the conference. And so what are his main, like, political concerns?
1: Well, this is why I think he is the man for the moment, At the moment being this current Congress. He has said himself, I did not come to Washington to make laws. What he came to Washington to do was to launch investigations. So he, he, he learned from very early on in his career that the path to power inside the conference, uh, the way to shore up the Republican base, the way to improve your brand is to kind of always be this fighter for a general conservative cause. And so, you know, in the piece, when I say the Republican conference was sworn in more with more with a complex than an agenda, you know, the complex is, is like a what, victim complex. It's a victim complex yeah. specifically. And and there is no one who has espoused that kind of worldview more obsessively than Jim Jordan. And so for him, in a, in a conference like this, there has been something of a consensus around the idea that, okay, we're not gonna be able to pass laws. What we can do is we can exercise our constitutionally mandated responsibilities of oversight. And so we are gonna hold this administration's feet to the fire, we're gonna look into Biden, where you see differences among sort of more moderate members and more extreme members is about how they think you can responsibly do that. Jordan is a true believer who will advance any and every conspiracy theory out there as long as it points to Joe Biden's criminal corruption, massive deep state conspiracies to discriminate against conservatives, and so on. I mean, because of the speaker's race and the fact that he just failed in running for speaker, as embarrassing as that was for him, he remains one of, if not the most, powerful Republican in the House. He is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He is essentially coordinating all of the Biden investigations. He's got a budget of $19 million at his disposal, a staff of over 60. This is much bigger than what the Democratic version of the Judiciary Committee was, again, because leadership in the Republican Conference for this Congress recognized that, okay, the way we're going to make inroads here, the way we're going to point to successes that we can amass over the course of this term is by launching investigations, not by passing laws. And so on a values level, on a practical level, on a resource level, he's really at the center.
0: How would you describe his style? In some ways, he kind of acts as a megaphone for people like Trump, but he also seems to be a lot more clever. And so I'm wondering if, if you can just give us a sense of his vibe and how the victim complex manifests for him.
1: Yeah. He's a skillful investigator in the sense that he is amassing evidence to prove preconceived ideas he has. And he will unflinchingly talk about his case Nothing can knock him off his script. He is a real attack dog.
0: You mentioned in um, your piece that he was a high school wrestling champion and also a college wrestler, which feels almost um, too obvious as a backstory in some ways. I mean, do you see that manifest itself in his politics at all?
1: You know, it sounds like a cliche, but, it's, but it really is true. I mean, he's someone who's always on the attack, uh, who always wants to fight it out. I mean, this is a big part of his political biography, and he loves telling this, when he first had a senior job on the House Oversight Committee, he said, the Oversight Committee is the closest thing in Congress you get to wrestling. You know, he's always emphasized the idea. (laughs) That's one way to look at it. (laughs) So absolutely. The aggressiveness, the relentlessness, all of that stuff, I think, is a habit of mind and a personal style and almost a branding device that allows him to understand what it is he does and to describe it to other people. Um, one thing that is striking, too, I, I will say, that's come through anecdotally in uh, in other people's reporting on him and his life, uh, and that also is true of of something that I would hear his colleagues say after he became a powerful person in the House, is that away from the cameras, away from the committee room, he's a kind of genial, you know, nice enough guy. It's when he is in those spaces that he really turns it on. And it's been said that when he was a wrestler, he was the same way.
0: It probably makes him an incredible politician. I mean, I'm sure that's kind of what you need.
1: I, I do think that there is an appeal he has with the Republican base that goes beyond just the conspiracy theories and the, the viewpoints that he that he espouses, but in fact also is a function of how relatable he seems as a person. He speaks in a very down-home way. And I think that is part of his appeal. You know, he's he is charismatic in, in the sense that just turn on the TV, he's always finding an opportunity to hold forth. Uh, when he does, he speaks in this kind of almost folksy-seeming way. There's a lot of passion in his voice. Of course, he's never wearing a jacket, which I guess makes him an, an, an everyman. <laughs> um, it's funny because, you know, liberals listening to him will often— scratch their head when he's done speaking because they'll think, what? I don't know any of these references he's making. I don't know any (laughs) of those names. Um, Whereas conservatives or people watching Fox News say or, or really inhabiting this conservative media space are fully read in to all of these conspiracies. So he's not his power is not as a kind of explicator of, you know, what the Republican investigations are about. Rather, he is there to state and restate that they're on a righteous crusade. It seems if you are following this stuff and if the premise of all these investigations of his does resonate with you, his knowledge of it seems to be encyclopedic. There was one very telling moment, I thought, Uh, in July of 2020. He at that time was just the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee because the Democrats at that point controlled the House. He was the sort of top Republican on that committee. Um, And he gave a, a speech about big tech censorship. That's what he calls it. And he says right at the outset, this isn't a suspicion, this isn't a hunch, this isn't a theory, it's a fact. And he launches right into a litany of examples.
0: June 29th, 2020, Amazon bans President Trump's account on Twitch after he raises concerns about defunding the police. June 4th, 2020, Amazon bans a book critical of the coronavirus lockdowns written by a conservative commentator. May 27th, 2020. Amazon Smile won't let you give to the Family Research Council and the Alliance Defense Fund, but you can give to Planned Parenthood.
1: Now, the first time I heard that speech, I had to go look up each of these examples. You know, I I wasn't following that stuff. And in fact, it had been reported. And, And there's this very striking experience, actually, you have reporting on him, which is you'll hear a speech like this. And he's running through. He's talking about Google. He's talking about Facebook. You know, he's sort of name-checking all of the big guns. And you go to look these things up, and, you know, good luck finding them in, you know, robust references to these particular plots. Good luck finding them in the outlets that you're used to reading. But if you start to wade into a more conservative media space, there's a rich, you know, reporting and history to each of these plots. Um, And so in every case, there's almost always a kernel of truth in what he's identifying. And so in some of these so-called tech censorship cases, there were instances of, you know, he said that he and three other Republican members of the House were shadow banned by Twitter, which obviously sounds very intimidating and worrisome, but which in fact meant that in this case, when they searched their names in the Twitter search bar, it didn't automatically populate with their account. And Twitter did acknowledge that there was a problem. That there was a glitch and they fixed it, but that alone was enough for him to really spin this case about how Twitter was out to get Republicans. And he, and he, you know, he runs into this whole thing. He says, you know, there are there are all these members of Congress, and he says how many people there are in Congress in the House, in the Senate. He says only four people, only four people were shadow banned. and that's that to him is this smoking gun.
0: Where does he get this information from? I guess I'm wondering, like, how he. How he gets this stuff, how he decides on his targets. Um, You know, in your piece, you talk a lot about these academics who study social media and disinformation, and um, or like these little-known government agencies and subcommittees who have become like these targets of Jordan and the Freedom Caucus in general. And so, I'm just wondering how they even, you know, find these people.
1: You know, it's interesting. When I started doing this reporting, I I had, I had the way I thought about this question, right? (laughs) right? And the way I had this question was. Exactly as you framed it. How do they alight on these particular people? The more the deeper I got into the reporting, ironically, because I went down some very deep rabbit holes, I started to realize that actually this is a pretty major and almost existential theory that Jordan is advancing here about big tech censorship of conservatives, the deep state, the politicization of the Justice Department. And in that sense, it's a very obvious target for him. I mean. If you have basically always been in Congress trying to uncover plots by liberals who are trying to discriminate against conservatives, who hold them in contempt, who ridicule them and so on, this is a kind of a classic example of that. The other thing is if you believe that the 2020 election was won by Donald Trump and that it was stolen from him, and that January 6th, the insurrection of the Capitol, was a just cause, you also need to zero in on this idea of misinformation because that's central to the January 6th committee. It's central to why Donald Trump is off of Twitter and Facebook. It's central to a lot of the plots swirling around the election and the aftermath of the election. So when you think about it in those terms, it's actually very obvious. I mean, you really have to like enter this space to see that it's actually quite an obvious target for him that if you want to discredit Um, any and all of the, the establishment voices. And by establishment voices, I don't just mean like media. I mean like courts and federal prosecutors and so on. You need to wage a certain kind of war, not on truth per se, but on the idea that there is something called misinformation. And that that itself is a bias that gives away the game for Democrats and liberals. And so... I mean, there were a lot of targets that he's had over the years, um, and I pursued a lot of them in my reporting. And 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 so one way of answering your question would be to relate through particular circumstances how he seized on particular people. And some of that is a function of conservative media, propping up individual stories. Like Hunter
0: con- Biden. The,
1: hun- the Hunter Biden's I mean, the Hunter Biden stuff is kind of f- front and center for, I would say, a broad swath of Republicans, too. So I- actually, I, I get quite alarmed when we enter the Hunter Biden space because it's um, this is not just Jordan. I mean, Jordan sure is the most dogged investigator, let's say, in into the various Hunter Biden plots. But you talk to a lot of Republicans and shading much more toward the middle of the party. And a lot of them share in those views.
0: I mean, would you say that the place where he's really made his mark is this like um, sort of argument that big tech has been in, in cahoots with the Biden administration to censor real information about donald trump's victory and about just the world
1: i think this is the area where where jordan can have the biggest and most lasting impact yes and that's the reason why i focused on it in the story i mean the, the hunter biden stuff is obviously huge politically it really can hurt the president not not because i think there's any evidence that's that's been laid out but just because in the political rough and tumble fine um but the big tech censorship stuff there really is a way in which Jordan and a minority of Republicans can start to change what the landscape online looks like. You know, tech companies never really wanted to engage in content moderation. They were essentially forced into it by a bunch of exceptional circumstances. The 2016 election, Trump's continual lies, the pandemic, all, all of this stuff. So they're not, they don't need all that much prodding to step away from content yeah. moderation. What, what Jordan's been able to do is seize on the ambiguity, uh, and Jordan, I should say, and other Republicans have been able to seize on the ambiguity surrounding content moderation and the fact that there is a certain unsavoriness to it. What does it mean? It does raise First Amendment questions. No one who's expert in this subject will say otherwise. Um, it is a little concerning that the federal government would pressure social media companies to take certain content down. And if you don't think that that's true, imagine – the Trump administration doing that. It would make you very uneasy. You know, all of these things are all also supercharged by the fact that Donald Trump has been indicted multiple times. He's almost assuredly going to be the Republican nominee for the presidency. And so there is a whole universe of organizations and interests that want to see him reelected and that the only way they can help that eventuality along is to try to smear the institutions of government that are bringing Trump to justice. And so you can see actually how this thing snowballs, how, you know, you take one of these Jim Jordan quotes out of context and it sounds a little bit loony. But in fact, it chimes with this much broader kind of orchestra of interests that need to, for instance, cast out on every action taken by the Department of Justice that need to make the Department of Homeland Security look wholly biased that need to portray the FBI as completely unreliable. Um, you know, some of these things are happening, for instance, at the same time that the FBI conducted that, that, well, they call it a raid. Other people would call it an investigation, seizing documents at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, That's further kind of grist for this, for this way of thinking.
0: So I'd like to ask you more about what Jordan tells us about the state of the Republican Party. But first, we're going to take a quick break. <music> You'll hear more from Jonathan Blitzer on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute.
1: Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P.O.D. 15 for a 15% discount.
0: What is Jordan's relationship with Fox News like? Uh,
1: someone who used to work with Jordan said to me that from a very early stage in his congressional career, he made a point of the phrase that this, this particular aide used was living on Fox News, uh, which I think summarizes it pretty well. He is always granted airtime to go into each and every one of these different investigations he's launching. One thing that's very interesting that happened during the speaker's race, just to jump ahead in time, was that in the final days of his short-lived speaker's bid, when it was clear that he wasn't going to overcome the resistance, there was kind of a core group of about 20 members who just didn't want to vote for him, who thought he was too extreme, too bad for the party, and so on. And when that became clear, that it was a, a group of that general proportion, um, producers working for Sean Hannity's show on Fox started sending around emails to the congressional offices of all of these holdouts, essentially making clear that if they couldn't give a good reason for opposing Jordan, they'd be forced to answer for themselves. Just straight intimidation tactics. The idea that that would circulate from a particular media personality of Fox News is quite staggering. But it does show you how, how closely aligned Jordan and elements of Fox News are, that there would essentially be major media personalities of Fox News who would go to the mat for Jordan.
0: So clearly Jordan is incredibly influential. And I mean, in your piece, you talk about how even before he ran for speaker, people referred to him as the other speaker of the House. So why is it that he lost his bid to actually become
1: speaker? You know, I think. What's telling about his being called the other speaker in these years when he was always plotting against House leadership was that he was basically a spoiler. He was someone who could make the lives of leadership so difficult that they would either bow out or have to regroup or make concessions they never want to make. But to do that, you don't need a majority of the conference behind you. He has a large number of people at his back, there's no question. But, you know, I think ultimately what doomed his speaker bid was the fact that he's never made inroads with anyone other than the far right over the years. Now, the far right's a very influential group to have on your side. I mean, he founded—he helped found the Freedom Caucus, for instance, in 2015. He's a superstar in conservative media. He is beloved by the base. These are all undeniable strengths that he has that make a lot of other members in the House scared of him. But at the end of the day— what could he actually offer to people who are of a more moderate bent inside the conference who are holdouts, you know, who aren't comfortable with his bid? He's never pushed legislation that's actually come to pass. He's never even sponsored legislation that's come to pass. He's made very clear he doesn't have any intention of doing that. You know, is, is he going to be able to negotiate a solution to prevent another government shutdown? He's pushed for government shutdowns before. He's played chicken with the federal default. So, you know, if you're a, a kind of not not even necessarily middle-of-the-road member, but if you're a kind of pro-establishment member of the Republican Party, you're looking at him and you're thinking, this guy is just going to light everything on fire. How does that help us? So I don't think he ever had the numbers to actually win the race. I think it's a, a real testament to his power that he came close. And it's a real window into his psyche that he tried and that he tried multiple times even when it was clear he wasn't going to win that he kept going but i think you know one very very revealing fact is that when the house voted on the floor for his you know whether or not they wanted him to be speaker you know he he went three times he went in three different rounds and he basically lost between 20 and 25 votes so he lost more votes each time but What officially ended his speaker's bid, because he was not prepared to end it on its own. This is someone, by the way, who was denied the outcome of an election he wasn't happy with. So it's not wholly surprising that he would bristle at the idea that it wasn't his time. Um, What officially ended his bid was um, a vote taken by secret ballot inside the conference, inside the Republican conference, on the question of whether or not he should stop running for speaker. There, a much greater number of people voted against him. Um, Because it was by secret ballot, which I think tells you a lot about how his influence works and how intimidating he is. I mean, while people were holding out in these big public floor votes against him, a lot of them were getting death threats. I mean, moderate members who were reporting death threats to their office, whose spouses were getting unsolicited emails and phone calls, you know, every manner of harassment and threat, the Fox News stuff circulating these, these emails saying that, you know, holdouts would have to account for themselves on Fox News. Yeah. So when that vote goes private, when, when you sort of see behind closed doors where no one has to attach their name to how they feel about Jim Jordan, the outcome is, I think, a little clearer that he's really never had those numbers in his, in his favor.
0: So how do you feel about Kevin McCarthy after all of this? It seems like he was kind of the lesser of two evils. And do you think that the Republicans themselves understand that and, and maybe regret ousting him?
1: I think a lot of Republicans, I think pretty much every Republican except for the eight who moved against him, feel that horrible injustice has been has been done to them, to the party, that it's plunged the party into chaos. People are starting to see how skillfully McCarthy was holding together these different untenable options. You know, I have to say, from, from a standpoint of pure political tactics, I thought McCarthy was pretty nimble in two major moments. One was in the summer, the vote to raise the debt ceiling to avoid yeah. a federal default. And then this last move at the start of this month to prevent a government shutdown. The ultimate move he took on averting a federal uh, shutdown, government shutdown, was the only option all along, and he could have just taken that option. Yeah. But, you know, if you subscribe to the view that his maneuvering is successful or unsuccessful by virtue of whether he stays in the job and kind of they keep muddling through, he was able to do it a few times. There was no outrunning this dynamic. Um, And I think in terms of his own political future and in terms of his own political brand, I think he played it as well as he could have. And I don't think that there's anyone else who could really come close. And now the conference has knocked out one after another of the more qualified candidates. So now you have a very strange situation in which most of the people who are running are by the standards of the job and the kind of precedent of one's credentials going for the job. These are people with very thin CVs to be second in line to the president. So I, I actually think that this has all shown Republicans that McCarthy, however, unlikable his malleability made him was someone who was willing to do the kind of like ugly, dirty things necessary to keep everyone more or less functioning in the same universe. And now I don't think anyone sees an outcome in which someone else can put this all back together.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Blitzer is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his story, Jim Jordan's conspiratorial quest for power, in the magazine or online now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sidney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Steven Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.